This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Rift Murder Suspects. The Chicago Film Festival. Vampires, comma, bad. And Josephine Peladon. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, Play for Players, Run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And what's going on in the gaming hut? Let's all... Oh my gosh, the lights went out! There's a crash! A gunshot! Or was it a knife stab? Who can tell? When we wake up, one of the miniatures is lying face down on the graph paper. <laughs> because it's been a murder? 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 The only suspect we can rule out is Peter Frampton. That's right, because he's still there on his uh, album cover and hasn't exactly. moved. Exactly, he's, he's got an alibi. Seventy-six. He's, he's been <laughs> busy uh, doubling as a GM screen since right. seventy-six. Uh, so yeah, I thought we would uh, riff ourselves a cast of um, murder mystery suspects. But in order to riff uh, a bunch of people who might have committed a murder, we got to start by riffing whoever it was who uh, did commit the murder. So as usual on these uh, Rift NPC segments, I have gathered a bunch of names together already because names are hard to think up on the fly. Another thing that's hard to think up on the fly are occupations. But in order for me not to have a jump on you and the improv sweepstakes here, Ken, Mm -hmm. I have selected six possible occupations. Mm -hmm. Uh, I nipped these educations from the uh, pages of the New York Times obituaries so that we get all interesting and noteworthy occupations right. that are easy to uh, weave and narrative around. And I have six choices. Nobody that's a TPS form filer. Yeah. And now a random die is going to tell us what the occupation of our victim, Earl Duncan, who has just been horribly murdered or perhaps subtly murdered. We don't yes. know yet. Oh, well, we know he's been murdered. Yes, we know he's been murdered. And we know that Earl Duncan was a physicist a physicist uh so the next step is to figure out uh a bunch of people in his life know and understand uh what relation they might have had to him now here i've just taken a random list of names but uh we can decide to assign uh, family relationships to any of these characters and knock off the existing uh, surname and replace it 
with Duncan as necessary. Or also, it's, can... it's modern times. Um, uh, people have different last names all the time. Uh, Earl's wife or husband probably has a different uh, last name. So, Earl Duncan is a physicist, just been found murdered. Among the people that we as investigators begin to look into is Johnny Evans. So, what relationship do you think uh, that good old Johnny Evans uh, might have had? Uh, Johnny Evans, I mean, we begin with a physicist, right? So, let's say that the Johnny Evans is Earl's golfing buddy. Right. He's not, uh, a, uh, a, phys- a fellow physicist, but he works at the same, uh, university that Earl Duncan does. Johnny Evans teaches business. Um, and so he's, uh, he's richer than Earl Duncan. And maybe there was a little bit of a jealousy between them and they would work it out in sort of a manly way on the golf course. And that was right. And that's Johnny Evans. Now it's kind of odd though to think that, uh, the, the lesser figure in the, in the rivalry would, would have murdered him. So I think we need to add a bit of, uh, possible motive there so uh perhaps johnny and earl were in, in business together right the right the business partner the business dispute is a classic uh, form mm-hmm. of uh, uh murder uh motivation although johnny would assure you that it wasn't a dispute really no of it course was not. just a misunderstanding because you know earl was a physicist he handled the the patents and such and johnny handled the money yeah and the lawyers were talking and everything was fine yeah it was all I good nothing at all to worry about they golfed just that weekend in fact. Right. And, uh, you know, Earl's accusation in his note that Johnny was trying to cut him out of the new company was, you know, nothing to... Just a uh, misunderstanding of yeah, standard exactly. filing document boilerplate. Right. And that was no threat to Johnny. He was going to sort it all out and mm-hmm. uh, everything was fine. Yeah. So uh, next we have Guadalupe Sanchez. And I think that, uh, as we've suggested, uh, you have to have familial relationships. Uh, and uh, so let's make Guadalupe Earl's wife. Okay. And so uh, basically the, uh, I I guess we need somebody to be having an affair and someone with a motivation to possibly uh, bump off Earl on that account. So uh, uh, Guadalupe, who's, let's say she's a, uh, she's a meteorologist. She's, uh, they met at a a conference, but now she's like a TV meteorologist. And it turns out that Guadalupe has been having an affair uh, with her segment producer. Oh dear. And that gives her a reason to be cagey with the investigator. She doesn't want to reveal that because the uh, segment producer, uh, she's married as well, and that would cause a big fuss, and uh, it would wreck things at work, and they didn't go and tell HR about their affair. So she thinks, you know, she doesn't want to be embarrassed. She doesn't want to be a big scandal. And so she's thinking that since since she's not guilty, or is she, that she Mm -hmm. should uh, not reveal uh, what uh, this might be. So, uh, next name on our list here is Lydia Mack. So, we need uh, a motivation and a a sort of a profile for her. I I think Lydia can be the classic uh, grad student whose research was maybe Earl was taking credit for her research and was getting in the way and not letting her uh, go towards her dissertation because he liked having her there making all these discoveries in the lab that he could then get his name on and advance in his field. And so she resented him for standing in her way professionally and um, uh, taking uh, all of the credit that should rightfully have been Lydia's because Lydia was the real sort of intuitive genius in the field, not Earl. Now, often with a murder suspect, you want a reason for them not to reveal everything right away. Right. Uh, and in this case, Lydia probably would be pretty eager to reveal that. So mm-hmm. uh, she makes a good sort of red herring as someone who one of the other suspects has planted the the real suspect, the real killer has planted uh, evidence on, on Lydia that points to uh, her possibly being uh, the killer. So the, 
easy way to do that is for uh, the killer to have left the murder weapon in the uh, trunk of her car. And so uh, she can or, be sur- or the other possibility is that the murder, if this was a John Dixon car mystery, and if he'd written it in the modern day um, with a knowledge of science, the murder would have been some convoluted wet method that could only have been accomplished with an advanced knowledge of physics. And so it's a, it's a, the mystery is a mystery of how he was murdered as well. And Lydia Mack knows how he's murdered, but she can't reveal that because she's the only person who might have had the knowledge to set it up. Uh, right. But we don't have to stick with that. We can go with murder weapon is in, her, in the trunk of her car if people don't want to make up a crazy physics murder method. Yeah. So if this is the Rube Goldberg murders yeah. and you're a, uh, a traveling creator of uh, mechanized uh, devices that goes around solving uh, other murders committed by Rube Goldberg devices... Uh, maybe that works, but uh, I think the uh, let's go for the simpler, uh, some sort of uh, murder weapon or some other. There's no or, love for John Dixon Carr anymore. Or some blood or something. So next we have uh, Ismael Ortiz. So we've got a bunch of uh, sort of uh, expected relationships that a physicist mm-hmm. would have. But of course, not all of us uh, in life have the kinds of uh, relationships that people expect us to have. We also have sort of uh, uh, interesting kind of... Uh, uh, sideline ones, and uh, let's say that uh, uh, Ismael is uh, like Earl, a uh, an aquarium enthusiast, and uh, they uh, were uh, vying to be head of the uh, local aquarium association, and it seems like a weird thing to have a dispute about, but in fact, Earl's voicemail is full of threats from someone who sounds a lot like Ismael Ortiz, and uh, therefore, you know, he's he's another sort of obvious suspect. It's a weird thing to possibly kill someone over, but it seems like Ismail was completely fixated on the idea that he would be displaced as president of the uh, Aquarium Association. Also, maybe they were uh, rivals for the fabulous Blue Tetra. Yes. And Earl got it and Ismail didn't, and he was mad as heck. Right. And if the murder uh, broke the aquarium, and now we don't know if the Blue Tetra is dead or missing or whatever. And if you want a a murder mystery, you always want to sneak in some sort of crime angle. And the idea that uh, there's a possible murder over the Aquarium Association. And this starts starting to seem better and better as the reason for the murder, because it's out of left field. Um, mm-hmm. perhaps Ismail, uh, was involved in the, uh, active field of, uh, rare fish smuggling and, yeah. uh, perhaps Earl, uh, cottoned onto that so that it's, uh, so that when the investigators first go it, and it seems like a stupid thing to have a murder over is who's the president of the aquarium association. So you go and talk to him and he says, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I, I lost my cool. I'm hot tempered. He knew that. He understood. I apologized to them. And then you go away again, and then you come back to him, and you find, oh, wait a minute. He's actually got real criminal connections over uh, a lucrative, uh, illicit operation. And, you know, maybe that uh, you come back to him, and the reason for the murder doesn't seem uh, quite uh, so absurd. But And I it's possible maybe- that Earl Duncan got his blue tetra from the ichthyology department at the university, and Ismail had a client who would pay like a million dollars for it. Uh, yes, it could have been a, a, a fight over a, a particular fish, and, and a fish has possibly gone missing. Yes. Um, now, we're starting to get up to about a, as big a cast as you want to deal with for a cast of suspects. but uh, Five to a- seven is the maximum. Right. Uh, so we've got uh, four... So uh, uh, let's go with uh, another one. Jess Hamby. What's Jess Hamby up to? Um, I think Jess Hamby is maybe a uh, former lover of Earl Duncan who took uh, his dismissal by Earl badly uh, when Earl uh, traded 
up and married uh, Guadalupe Sanchez, and Jess has been uh, holding a grudge over his uh, dismissal in the affections of Earl forever, and he just sort of stays on the out. He's like the pro at the golf uh, shop, right? He's the pro at the golf course. And so he's sort of a tangential figure in the investigation, but then you see him at the university, and you're like, what's the golf pro doing here at the university? And then you see him at the fish smuggling area. What's he doing there? And he's sort of an obsessive stalker of Earl Duncan, and maybe he did it, and maybe he's also a key witness, but he can't come forward because he doesn't want to come out uh, at the at the golf pro as, as being at the golf shop and being gay, because there's a lot of very conservative members of the club, and they would shun him and not tip him and so there's all manner of of personal problems for jess and he can't really say what he saw or why he has been following this case obsessively and you could add another detail back because it also helps to build relationships between the suspects so that uh, there's other stuff for people to, to untangle and so it may also be that he uh you know overheard uh johnny evans with his lawyer plotting to uh, rip off Earl, right when they were when they were playing golf, Jess was um, uh, was uh, caddying or whatever. Yes, and so then he heard that, and uh, he's been or was a third member of the a third of member the, or, or or whatever, or was in the yeah. locker room or, or what have you, and so he's overheard Johnny talking to his lawyer, uh, making plans to rip off Earl, and Jess has therefore uh, been blackmailing Johnny. And that gives uh, a, a, another complication, another reason why uh, he won't come forward, and a reason for Johnny to try and throw suspicion onto Jess without admitting his own wrongdoing. So, mm-hmm. so we've got a couple of uh, suspicious people who are acting uh, overtly angry toward our uh, suspect, and some who have uh, other reasons to uh, have possibly uh, murdered him. And so that's, I think, a pretty good tangled web of clues. And then uh, from there, you can uh, uh, decide uh, in your game just what, how crazy you want the murder method to be. Do you want a John Dixon Carr, you know, killed by physics thing? Or do you want the good old-fashioned passionate bludgeoning to the back of the head with, let's say, a golf club? That's uh, mm-hmm. pretty easy to hand if, uh, if we've got a whole bunch of golfers involved. And also something that would throw the investigators off because uh, Ismael is not associated with uh, golf. But uh, when he went into uh, Earl's office, there were Earl's golf clubs and uh, hence the murder. So, the uh, murder. yeah. So this is an example, folks, of how to quickly weave a, a web of suspects in a murder case. And uh, generally in gaming, uh, you would then probably add a layer of uh, some sort of genre element. You might. Uh, so if we took all those characters and this murder was on a space station, it might have a different sort of uh, covering or overlay or, you know, the, the, the golf is much more and less challenging. Yeah. And uh, you know, if, if it's a Lovecraftian game, while well, the physics are always messing with, of course, we're about to open a gate and that uh, has something to do with something and has a and so Lydia to... murdered him to keep the gate closed. Right. Something like that. Uh, but anyway, that's sort of a, an exercise in how to uh, connect a whole bunch of characters together by way of, and uh now that we've murdered this segment it's time to uh slip away hopefully columbo won't ask us one last question because we're headed uh, through this commercial to the segment that lies beyond Hey, 
Robin. What you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pilgrim Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh. The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. Well, we hear the smell of popcorn in the cinema hut, but also we hear the grumbling of long-suffering patrons standing in line to get into the venue and the uh, groans of dismay of the beleaguered volunteers because this, this is not just a cinema hut, it's a film festival version of the cinema hut. And if it's me throwing it, that means Ken is just back from his film festival, the Chicago International Film Festival, with a report on what he saw. And Ken, when I first saw the list of titles that you were going out to, I was starting to think, hey, maybe my down year at TIFF didn't mean a general down year for cinema, but just somehow TIFF didn't get the good ones this year because <laughs> there was the Takashi Miike movie and there was the Shion Sono movie. And uh, even though the Takashi Miike movie is top of your list, uh, you didn't see any pinnacles either. This no, time. I so didn't. I think it is a down year for cinema. So that's, uh, I guess I have to be less uh, pouty at TIFF over that. But let's uh, get to the list of films with the aforementioned Blade of the Immortal by Takashi Miike, which fortunately will be getting a theatrical release uh, very soon. Good. Um, because it deserves it, because it is Miike, and because it is my heart. Um, this is a, his hundredth movie. It's based on a uh, manga, which I have not read, but my friend Randy uh, accompanied me to this film and said that the manga is one of the top pieces of visual art uh, ever in his life. He's an artist, uh, uh, does the art for split-second games, and uh, he was over the moon with this film, thought it was a terrific adaptation of the manga as well. I went in cold and had the experience that I enjoy of seeing the characters and feeling like they extend off the movie, that the movie is just not the whole, ex their whole existence, that they have a, uh, you know, maybe a whole nother movie that they came in from or a whole nother series of movies. So in that way, Mike very uh, clearly takes what it must be the sort of iconic murderous samurai guys and uh, presents them in a way that you instantly understand these are iconic murderous samurai guys, not just Joe random murderous samurai guys. And so this is the story of an, uh, the tech, the titular immortal uh, Manji and uh, his foe, the guy who runs the Ito Ryu fencing school, whose goal is to destroy all other fencing schools to break down barriers between all uh, sword fighters so that they can all be equals. And so he's got a, a stern moral code that he lives by. He's very clearly a, a sort of a, a, a an anti-heroic uh, villain in a way. Um, he's still a, a monster because he's a bad guy in a manga. And then uh, there's all manner of other very 
um, uh, notable, you know, it's, it's like watching a Batman movie in a way. I, I say that it's the best superhero movie or one of the best superhero movies I've seen since Winter Soldier because the characters are so clearly these sort of demigods. I, I suppose you could also compare it to an Arthurian movie if there was more than one good Arthurian movie, but, um, uh, the, the characters, these sort of mythic beings that exist and are slowly being drowned in uh, futility because that's what happens once the age of samurai and the age of legend goes away. So I guess in that way, it's also a Western, but it's mostly a superhero film and it's all great. There's Chambara. There's two just immense sword fights that sort of bookend the movie that are just monstrous carnage throughout uh, Mike filming him uh, perfectly. The first one is very clear and you understand everything. The second one is just like the battle of Shrewsbury in chimes at midnight in that it, it's just this chaotic brew and you can't follow anything. So it's very much uh, you could also compare it. If there had been a good Trojan war film, this would be a good Trojan war film um, uh, nods to Sergio Leone, because uh, if you don't nod to Sergio Leone, then his, he curses you from the afterlife, I guess. Um, it's, it's a terrific f- film and I very much recommend it. If, if, whether you like the manga, whether you know the manga or not, it's, it's going to hopefully get you where you, uh, live. Right. And for Mike, the question is always, uh, ultra violence level for, it can be anywhere from a zero to ultra, ultra violent. Where are we at here? We're at ultra, but not ultra, ultra. It's, um, there's a great deal of it, but it is almost all of it stylized Chambara violence. There is one or two exciting, uh, special effects violences, but by and large, the, 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 the crazy fun comes when the hero literally pulls out a random weapon from the Palladium Book of Exotic Weapons and <laughs> uses it to, uh, massacre a bunch of guys, or in some cases, just massacre one guy. But it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's a great thing. And, um, maybe ultra plus, maybe ultra is a little low, but not ultra ultra. It's, it's not, um, uh, audition. Mike, this is this is the post nihilist Mike where he believes in things again. Right. Uh, so next we have uh, November, uh, which is uh, set in Estonia. The director's name is uh, Rainer Sarney, uh, and it's a black and white uh, movie about fairy tales and the devil. Yeah, it's very much this. It's a it's a love triangle. Um, our sort of protagonist hero heroine is a teenage girl who's a peasant and also a werewolf. Uh, her name is Lena and she loves a boy named Hans who does, who barely knows she's alive because Hans only has eyes for the German Baroness who has just arrived. Uh, this is in the time when Estonia is run by German land lords. Although since the visual cues are kind of 19th century, maybe 18th century, it's in the Russian empire, but they're still German landlords. And, uh, one of the interesting things that the movie does is it does play a little bit with time. So it's very much set in sort of fairy tale time in that Illud Tempest where, uh, things are mysteriously there or not there, uh, depending on, you know, whether or not the story wants them to be. And believe me when I say, uh, Lena being the werewolf is like if you had another movie where Lena was a stamp collector. It's, <laughs> it's not a werewolf movie, except that the protagonist is a werewolf. It, it, she just turns into that's just a thing she does. The acceptance of this Estonian fairy tale supernatural is constant. The movie makes no bones about it. It's like, yep, you can whistle up the devil at a crossroads and get a soul to put into a bunch of farm implements that wanders around and does work for you. You there, there's love magic, there's prophecies, the ghosts come back on um, uh, All Souls Day, and um, uh, you know, and they eat your food and hang out with you and tell gossip. And it's just straightforwardly fairy tale uh, realism, but the filming is this sort of 
insanely lush black and white. And because it's Estonia in November, often it's white on white because it snows sometimes in the movie. And so you have snowy trees against a white gray sky on a snowy field and the characters are bundled up in their, in their, in their uh, rags and whatnot. So it's just an amazingly visual experience, a very lush black and white. It's not a stark noiry black and white. It's, it's a crazy lush black and white. If that makes any sense, uh, Mark Taniel, the, uh, cinematographer needs to be given a, a James Bond movie that doesn't suck. Uh, or something. He needs to be given something, an award, and the Estonian government's highest award. Uh, it's, it's an amazing movie. It, it really evokes, uh, fairy tales in that it doesn't make them twee and it doesn't make them domestic and it doesn't make them exotic. It's just part of the lived experience of people. And yes, it's scary and dangerous because guess what? You're a peasant in Estonia. Life is scary and dangerous. So tonally, are we talking, uh, Fantasy drama, horror, where are we at? It's fan, it's closer to fantasy drama with, with a strong thread of black comedy because again, Estonia. If Rob, uh, if our buddy Rob Heinso hasn't seen this, it is a Rob Heinso kind of a movie. I mean, you definitely his, his, his bloodline is strong in this film, I think. Um, uh, so if you, if you can imagine Rob telling you a scary story about the devil and werewolves and doomed lovers, that's what this movie is like. Uh, so next we have uh, in the teen duo uh, plan a murder subgenre of crime film, we have Thoroughbreds, a uh, U.S., I guess, indie film directed mm-hmm. by Corey Finley. And Corey Finley is apparently a playwright of uh, great experience. And so while that does not always guarantee a good script, in this case it does, because this began as a play. He has worked on it off and on, I think he said, for 10 years in the Q&A afterward. Um, and he turned it into a movie, uh, eventually realizing that that was a good way to do things. And he has an amazing cast, uh, Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor-Joy. Anya Taylor-Joy, of course, from The the Witch. Um, I forget what Olivia Cook was in, but she's been in a bunch of stuff. And uh, they are Connecticut girls from um, Greenwich, Connecticut, that sort of isolated bubble of insanely rich people where the only very rich people are sort of social outcasts to the super rich people. And so there's some weird uh, psych- psychological stuff going on. There's some weird class stuff going on. And it turns out, hey, they're both sociopaths, uh, because why wouldn't they be in this environment? And Lily hates her stepfather, so maybe we could murder Lily's stepfather. That'd be fun. Uh, the, the script doesn't quite maintain that sort of Hitchcockian level of ironic distance throughout. But it's but it's very strong, and uh, the two leads are terrific. And then Anton Yelchin shows up in a a role as a drug dealer, a lower class drug dealer, who is the only person in the movie with a functioning moral center. <laughs> uh, speaking of moral centers, and I bet this one is way off center. The uh, dark South Korean crime film that Tiff didn't get is The Merciless. The Merciless, by Young Sun Hyung. Yes, uh, this is um, like. Many, many crime films. It's about a, um, a undercover cop who is infiltrating a gang, uh, a smuggling ring in this case in Busan. And uh, guess what? Guess what happens, Robin, when the undercover he cop, close. he gets too close, he gets too close. And there's a, a sort of a, a father figure, brother figure, lover figure, um, uh, other criminal guy who he's uh, meant to be taking down. But of course, they fall for each other in that East Asian manliness way. The very, very much the killers, very much um, internal affairs uh, or infernal affairs, rather, uh, 
um, it, it's, uh, it, it's just, it's that story again, but it's that story done like South Korea does everything really, really well. There is a tiny sort of a, a, a thing where there's a character that does something and you're like, I think they just did that to make the movie end. Uh, but there's a, but, but it's not like impossible. It's not an idiot plot. It's just a, you could, you could believe it as a mistake, but it's a mistake that they make that creates the ending, not a mistake that it derives necessarily from anything that's happened before. But the direction is terrific. The acting is terrific. The music is terrific. And it's a Korean gangster film. So the gangstering is terrific. I, uh, you know, in, when with South Korea, I have to sort of, divide them between essential and just perfect. <laughs> and this is only perfect. It's not essential, but uh, to have that problem in, in any cinema is great. And Korean gangster films are, are as you know, terrific. Now uh, on to another uh, Ken and Robin area, which is the uh, utopian project of a <laughs> documentary uh, about a domed city in Minnesota, or uh, I guess, is this a muted domed city or an actual domed city? They were planning to build what they called the Minnesota Experimental City. So, so before we go any further, the film is called The Experimental City, and it's directed by Chad Friedrichs. Um, this is an actual uh, Minnesota, like I said, this is an actual city, the Minnesota Experimental City, that they were planning because there was a sort of a visionary urban design guru, technology guru named Athelstan Spillhouse. <laughs> huh. Because reality is never told by the editor that right. things over the top. Right. And so Athelstan Spillhouse ran a, um, uh, wrote a comic strip in the Minnesota papers called Our New Age that showed, you know, how, what the future would look like once we got all these monorails and atomic power plants yeah. and space colonies set up. Um, and he, um, uh, was like buddies with Buckminster Fuller, and he was also buddies, as it turned out, with the very powerful progressive Republican publisher of the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And that guy gave him the hookup to all manner of Minnesota's best and brightest, and they formed a consortium to get this experimental city done. The notion being they would build a city of 250,000 people from scratch as a way, as a pilot, a test bed for all of the ways that you could build a city to reduce waste, to reduce crime, to reduce energy use, to um, uh, basically create a technological, progressive, modern utopia in Minnesota. And they were going to cover it with a Buckminster Fuller dome so they wouldn't have to heat it. So that would save power. They were going to ban cars in it and everyone would drive around in electric cars. And then you'd sort of get in your your pods and you your regular cars could leave and go to filthy rest of the world. And they would put like the factories would be next to each other so that one factory's waste product would be another factory's input. And they would be able to sort of chain the use of the resources. So they would cut down on waste and cut down on pollution. And all of this stuff was going to be designed just as soon as someone figured out how to pay for it. And so being, you know, progressive technocrats, they said, why doesn't the government pay for it? This would pay for itself. This is the era when they're paying to put a man on the moon after all. And what's, you know, that's hardly relevant compared to building the city of tomorrow because they said, look, population growth is going to mean that we're building a um, hundred new cities or the equivalent of a hundred new cities in the next uh, 50 years. Why not build one of them according to scientific and progressive lines? And so as they're setting this up and planning it, um, uh, Hubert Humphrey joins the cause 
and uh, they get uh, a law passed in the Minnesota legislature to appropriate some money and some land and do a study project. And then once they start doing the site explorations, they are doing it after Humphrey has lost the 1968 election. And so now they have to look in places that are Minnesota state land, not federal government land, and that maybe aren't as good as they would have been. And so they pick someplace way the hell and gone out in Aitken County, which is sort of a county that is according to the film pretty much all bogs and mosquitoes you got to find a big expanse yeah. or something where there isn't a utopian city in order right. to build your utopian city so what's left swamp yeah it has to be near a road but not on prime agricultural land and not and more than an hour from another city uh and that was their 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 sort of uh goal and then also it had to be a place the state owned a lot of land and then the locals in adican county said well we don't want a stupid a dome city or even a regular city. We live in Aitken County for God's sake. Do you think we like yeah. cities? And so they uh, organized a people power protest against the progressive technocrats who wanted to build them a city there. And uh, the, the film is sort of playing judo because it assumes anyone who's going to see a documentary about urban planning is a certain political persuasion. And so it gets them rooting for the solving of everyone's problems and then nails them with the guys that another documentary would have begun with as the heroes who rose up and stopped the man from building a stupid atomic power plant right next to them. And I'm going to say that some people who know there are urban planning already know where this is going. Yeah. They, yeah. I, I, well, I think most people know that they didn't get a city built, but, right, but I, I think I, I even, and I think many of them think that it may be a big utopian planned community. It's probably better off yeah. not having been built. Well, one, one hopes that, <laughs> but yeah. again, uh, there, but for Hubert Humphrey's vic- uh, failure to win over Richard Nixon goes Minnesota's magical domed city. It's a good thing. I guess we don't have a, It'd be a, some sort of horrible megadome by now with mutants in it. Uh, but one thing that doesn't have mutants in it is uh, uh, France uh, Faces Places, uh, the documentary. Yeah, let's not speak for all of France, but certainly there are no mutants in Faces Places. There are places. no mutants in Faces Places. Just by, lovely, uh, lovely French people. Agnes Varda and the uh, installation slash mural artist uh, J.R. Um, I saw that at TIFF. It's one of my favorites. I think maybe the favorite I saw. And... Uh, I gather you found it lovely as well. Yes, based on your recommendation, I put it because generally when you recommend a movie, it's worth seeing. Often it is very much worth seeing, and uh, I saw it. I'm not sure that I loved it as much as you, but I certainly uh, loved it a great deal. Um, It's uh, just about how life is good. And even if life is bad, life is good because it is still worth celebrating because it is a human life and a human experience. And as annoying as Jr. is, he is right about that. And so you forgive him a lot of his other ridiculous a- affectations. And Agnes Varda, of course, is is a delight to, to watch talk about sort of her life and sort of look back on on what she's accomplishing and trying to accomplish with her art. And then it ends with a uh, dig at uh, Jean-Luc Godard, which I thought was almost the perfect ending to this movie is to say, oh, right, Godard's an ass. Yes. <laughs> not to spoilers, but yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's not a huge plot development at the end. Right. Um, and so let's very quickly uh, wrap up with one more item. This is something that's just one tick shy of your recommended category, but might be of interest to genre fans. Sicilian Ghost Story uh, by uh, Fabio Grassadonia and Antonio Piazza. 
Yeah, this is about an actual kidnapping and murder uh, in 1993 uh, of a 12 year old boy named Giuseppe De Matteo who was uh, kidnapped by uh, the mob because his father was an informant and they wanted uh, his father to stop informing. And so they thought if we kidnap his son, he'll stop informing. And of course that nothing ever works and certainly it doesn't work there. And so he was, he was found dead and it was a sort of a, a real, uh, caused a celeb in Sicily and a lot of, uh, Sicilian, uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, normal people who had sort of accepted the mob as part of their life were like, well, this is kind of disgusting and we shouldn't be accepting this. And so it, it began a, a thing and became a big deal. And someone wrote a, a short story in which, uh, there was a girl who was in love with, uh, Giuseppe and it was her, uh, love for him, an obsessive desire to find him that sort of grants him a, a reason to have, uh, to have, to have lived. His, his little 12 year old life or 13 year old life wasn't, uh, uh, completely without meaning. And so they took this story and they cast just an amazing bunch of kid actors. Uh, and there aren't, there's no child actor industry in Sicily or even in Italy. So they went to the, the area of Sicily uh, around there and they just sort of looked for kids who could act. And the, the girl who plays Luna, the girl is, is a revelation. She's astonishing. And from like the first scene, you're willing to follow this movie wherever it goes uh, because she is so great and so real and so alive and so vibrant. And it's really, really terrific. And the movie attempts to blend this genuine crime story and this uh, artificial but real in the sense of really emotionally affecting love story with sort of fairy tale elements and mythology elements and dream elements. And the, the, for example, if this takes place, the woods around here are where um, Persephone was kidnapped uh, by Hades. And so there is a, a lot of allusions to that going on. At one point, um, uh, Luna is wearing a red hooded cloak as she goes through the woods looking for these mobsters. And so that's a, a, an element of it. And there's lots of these sort of elements. And then there's a sort of the, 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 the kids communicating a little bit or, uh, she has waking hallucinations because she's so obsessed with this that her health is, is failing. And does it, are those real dreams? Is she having visions? Does she see him? And there's all kinds of sort of questions that it raises and it doesn't blend them as seamlessly into the other two narratives as it would have had to, for me to make it rec uh, recommended, uh, despite the just amazing performance by the, by the kid actors, especially the girl who plays Luna, um, which is uh, terrific. And it, it, it's because I kept sort of bobbling out of the movie as I'm watching these, these elements and not going completely into it, that that's why it's not quite recommended. But if you are into any of those things, if any of that sounds interesting, or you just want to watch a tour de force of a 13 year old girl, uh, performance, uh, I recommend Sicilian ghost story on that basis. So as usual, film festival titles roll out, uh, sometimes very quickly showing up in theaters as, uh, Blade of the Immortal will, if you happen to live in a large enough city that it gets, uh, offbeat titles. And uh, I suspect Thoroughbreds is going to show up either in real film or um, on streaming because it's Anya Taylor-Joy and it's terrific. Right. So uh, over the next uh, sort of year and a half, uh, those will start appearing. And uh, I see what's appearing on the horizon, though, which is another commercial. And probably behind it, uh, experience tells me another segment.
Eight years ago, the terrorist agents of Havoc triggered a nuclear nightmare that devastated the Northern Hemisphere. Patiently in scattered colonies deep underground, survivors have been waiting for the radiation to ebb. That day has come. But the real battle for survival has only just begun. In Freeway Warrior 1 Highway Holocaust, you are Cal Phoenix, the Freeway Warrior, champion and protector of Dallas Colony 1. Murderous Havoc bikers hunt your fragile convoy as it crosses the wastelands of Texas. Defending your people and reaching your destination intact requires all the wit and courage you can muster. Highway Holocaust, an exclusive hardcover with dust jacket and book ribbons, is the first choose-your-own-adventure gamebook in Joe Deaver's post-apocalyptic apocalyptic Freeway Warrior series. From the fine folks at Phoenix, now available from Modifius. Reveal the real suspect by joining such Patreon backers as Ben White, Sean Mulhern, Andrew Laliberti, Andrew Miller, and Steve Kuntz. It's time again to ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, Aaron Sapp asked Ken specifically the following. Of course, Patreon backer, Aaron Sapp. I seem to remember Ken saying something on the show about not making games where vampires are the heroes because vampires are rapists. Now that you're working on Vampire 5th Edition, how are you bringing that sensibility to the process? Well, um, obviously, the uh, equation of vampires with rape, I mean, it goes back farther than Stoker. It goes back to the Middle Ages, the genuine myths where the dead person would come out of their grave. And the first thing they want to do is eat and drink. The second thing they want to do is rape somebody. So, it's, and, and the first two things are yeah. metaphors for the third. <laughs> right, exactly. And so the um, uh, you go down to the Anne Rice vampires who have uh, all manner of, of big and little questions of consent and big and little questions of what is power balance and what is uh, to what extent can you voluntarily be abused and uh, all kinds of other questions. But the eternal dynamic is the same that a vampire has to feed by taking a uh, life force from you and nine times out of 10, or perhaps 99 times out of a hundred or perhaps 999 times out of a thousand that's taken unwillingly. And given the sexualization of the vampire, there's your metaphor, people. I didn't make it up. The thing about Vampire the Masquerade is that it began with the exception, with the accepting of the fact that the vampire is a monster and the belief that as a monster, given that you're a monster, what do you do from that point? And that was always the central question of Vampire the Masquerade. And I think to the extent that I'm bringing any special sensibility to the game, which I don't think I am, is that I'm... Once again, going back to that question, you're a monster. What is your arc? Are you falling further into monstrosity, which we know plenty of people do? Are you trying to do good uh, despite being a monster? No, I'm only going to eat bad people. Or are you attempting a virtually impossible salvation to, to, to return back up and become human? And in a way, fifth edition allows that a little more because, you know, again, you're one generation farther down the line. So the vampires are are less monstrous, less bestial at the beginning. And then uh, salvation's just, it's just, you can just barely see it. You can just see a, a way to get out. And that makes the tragedy and the drama uh, ever more poignant. And those, of course, are the core sort of uh, elements of Vampire the Masquerade. And to the extent that I'm doing anything with that core story, it is to provide rules, uh, structures, by which you can tell those stories informed by, you know, the basic last, you know, decade, 15 years of game design in which there are uh, rule structures for story beats, rule structures that support 
uh, GMs wanting to, um, uh, to present, uh, emotional drama and other things than how hard did you hit the werewolf? Um, and that is, you know, that's been the goal of vampire since 1991. It's still the goal of vampire. It's just that now I'm in charge of it. So yeah, I mean, vampire is, is vampire a game about monsters? Absolutely. It always has been a game about monsters and, the the question is, what do you do with that knowledge? Um, do you, I mean, one assumes you don't just sit out on the roof uh, when the sun comes up because then your character has a fairly short arc. So you're playing a character who's decided not to do that. And that, you know, and, and that's where the questions begin. Right. And I guess the, uh, the word that's uh, everything turns on in the, in that sentence is heroes mm-hmm. because they are uh, the vampires in uh, the masquerade are not, uh, if done right, yeah. conventionally, heroic they are uh, tragic heroes or uh, i think at worst they're sort of anti-heroes where you get to uh, enjoy all of this uh horror and devastation that they're uh causing and then let yourself off the hook by saying oh yeah but he's he's really suffering inside after mm-hmm. you know decapitating all these people and sticking their heads on pikes and you know but the uh, if you take it seriously and take humanity seriously it is a uh, you know a moral spiral as we were talking about uh, mm-hmm. in the previous episode uh, rather than uh, something where you are rooting for the rapist to go out and commit a bunch more rapes yeah you're not attempting to to sort of make that uh heroic behavior but again the temptation to indulge your beast nature is core to vampire it's core to the game and it's core to the legend uh, and certainly it's core to the popular culture that the legend has morphed into. And that then is present in the same way that call of Cthulhu tempts you into learning more about the, uh, Cthulhu mythos and even trying to weaponize it. Oh no, only for good causes. I'm destroying physics for good reasons. And you know, in, in, you could similarly say, well, you're just playing a bunch of murderers in a straight up F 20 game. Well, yes, you are, but, that's kind of not the point. And again, in Vampire, that kind of at least can be uh, the point and was the point as it was intended to be in 1991. Now, obviously, people can play games how they play games, and I'm not going to run around and police everybody's game group. So, you know, if you're playing Vampires are, you know, superheroes, knock yourself out. But I'm presenting a framework by which you can play the game as it was designed in 1991 and as it was written. Right. And vampire games that go sideways are often ones that not where people abandon the spirit of the game, not by saying let's double down on the whole rapist aspect, but let's just go completely bananas and have it be a game about uh, immortal people shooting machine guns at each other. Mm -hmm. And so the, you know, the more uh, typical uh, off brand version of vampire is, just a fighty killy one with uh, modern uh, super powerful entities wearing cool outfits. Yeah. The trench coats and katanas, as they used to say back in the day. Right. And uh, one of the things that pop culture does is it allows us to sublimate and play with uh, things that are uh, terrible and frightening and, and awful in the real world and achieve a measure of symbolic power over them by making them, uh, kind of uh, uh, goofy or just controlling the way that their story outcome goes in the case of role playing or, uh, you know, even as an audience member, that this is a way, like so many monster stories are, of dealing with uh, what in real life is a really genuine horror and in a way sort of uh, taming it and acquiring a, a psychic, if not an actual 
uh, power over it. And one of the things that I think we have to allow ourselves uh, to do as storytellers around a table, if everybody is down for it, is to uh, be willing to deal with these uh, dark metaphors, if not the dark actualities. Yeah, well, ideally, you're not dealing with the dark actuality of the game. Uh, right. <laughs> that would be, I, I think, maybe a little too intense. But uh, dealing with it in metaphor is, as you say, you know, it's not unique to role-playing. Um, I think role-playing sort of provides a personal connection that other art forms don't. But, you know, dealing with the unpleasantness of life uh, or or uh, moral evil through metaphor goes you know, it's older than the ancient Greeks and the ancient Greeks were doing it uh, pretty well in like 500 BC. So there you go. Uh, well, on the words, there you go. I think that suggests that we have uh, answered Aaron's question and can move on to our final segment. The covert agents of Delta Green fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. Your players are those agents. As their GM, you need to handle them. That's why you need the Delta Green Handler's Guide, the game's game moderator-only rulebook. Including such essential eyes-only features as... A history of the world of Delta Green, from pre-human times to the present day, with campaign tips and scenario seeds on every page. Sinister rituals, unnatural entities, and reality-shattering great old ones. New threats to shock and terrify your agents. The secret of Delta Green organization in deep and disturbing detail. And the other ruthless conspiracy that claims it is the real Delta Green. Oh, those jerks again. Ah. Also includes Operation Fulminate, the Sentinels of Twilight, a sample scenario ready to play. Your players, they are the apocalypse. You, you moderate their apocalypse. With the Delta Green Handler's Guide from Arc Dream Publishing. As we approach the Victorian Greystone, wherein normally lurks the consulting occultist, we see a, a placard on the door that says, Gone for uh, Canada Day. And we wonder, <laughs> have we taken a wrong turn through the twisty alleys and fog-shrouded corners that lead us to the consulting occultist? Obviously, we've taken a temporal jog. We've taken a temporal Canada jog. Day at the... Uh, Consulting your cultists. Maybe uh, every day is parlor. Canada Day. It's like Children's Day. Right. Well, the magic beaver is magical. The so magic is, beaver is, is within magic. the consulting occultists. In his purview. Notwithstanding the placard, the dismissive placard, we move forward as the occult uh, seeker must. We go up the stairs, which curve to the left, not to the right. We pass a glowering portrait of... Why it's it's Mackenzie King. It's not Madame Blavatsky at all. And <laughs> and, and Mackenzie King's psychic dog. And his psychic, psychic dog. dog. I said it's a portrait, Robin. And so uh inside the parlor, which is slightly less uh louche and Edwardian, but uh has an Eames chair instead of an overstuffed chaise lounge, we see a consulting occultist with a goatee. But hopefully not an evil mirror universe goatee, or is it? Barely plucking up our courage, we ask, Hey, consulting occultist, what do you know about Josephine Peladon? Because Patreon backer Paul wants the 101 on this guy. Well, coincidentally enough, uh, he's a French occultist who was active uh, during the Belle Epoque. Therefore, 
he appears in the Yellow King role-playing game. Therefore, I have already researched him. Thank uh, goodness. So, so thanks for the opportunity for the additional plug there, Paul. It was uh, a, a rare bit of uh, a taste and discernment on your part. So I don't know how rare it is. Maybe Paul is always tasteful and discerning. He just doesn't bother to tell us about it. Uh, well, uh, rare as against the general backdrop of unwashed humanity. Right. right. No, yes. Right. Yeah, there standards. you go. Yeah. Okay. Just making sure that we're not damning Paul with faint praise because Paul seems great. He's, he's my new friend. Right. Uh, so uh, Josephine Paladin uh, was a, a Rosicrucian Christian magician active, particularly during the 1890s and uh, a little bit in the 1880s, uh, he became a magician. He spontaneously initiated uh, when he went to uh, Bayreuth, Germany, where one uh, at the time and still goes to see Wagner opera productions. And he went to see a performance of Parsifal and boom, it made him magical. It made him into a uh, magician. And then uh, he went off to explore uh, Rosicrucianism and uh, uh, Christian mysticism and interest in this sort of ran in the family. His brother was also interested in uh, the occult. But uh, Josephine Paladin was uh, not a man to diminish his own importance. And so uh, after he became magical, after he self-initiated or Spantoni or Wagner initiated him uh, by proxy, he gave himself a title, Tsar, uh, and that is Assyrian for king. And uh, he uh, went about uh, Paris engaged in his occult activities, wearing uh, one of a number of uh, lush wizard's robes, because uh, if you're going to be a magician, he was going to dress like a magician, by gosh. And he had a also, uh, like many uh, eccentrics who wish to call attention to themselves, uh, a exciting special groovy hairdo of uh, big curly locks, sort of uh, mm -hmm. in sort of a topiary kind of fashion. And, an, and, a, and a magic beard. And a magic beard, He had yes. a magic beard. Very, uh, very pointy. So he was, he was definitely of, of the wizard class. He was an F20 character. Um, and so he initially founded a, uh, group called the Ordre Cabalistic de la Rose Croix. By that name, you can tell it's a Rosicrucian group. And he founded it by, uh, with another occultist, uh, as part of this sort of circle of people in the 1880s and 90s who were forever, uh, joining up and feuding with each other and having arguments and uh, breaking up. Uh, a guy named uh, Stanislas de Guaita. And uh, they uh, got along for about uh, seven years in the Order Cabalistic de la Roquois, which had uh, uh, a, a whole sort of ritual uh, set up, and everybody had their own special title, and there were X number of you know, 36 uh, designated members of the upper uh, order. But after seven years, they had a falling out over doctrine, and so Paladin went off to form the not-at-all-confusingly-similarly-named Mystic Order of the Rose and Cross. And so uh, his, if you read his mystical writings, there's a lot of uh, sort of high-flown idealism, and, uh, you know, it's all, you know, it's all a white-sounding magic, you know, fellowship and understanding and uh, creating a new harmony and a, a new uh, world of uh, uh, harmonic perfection and so forth. Um, his magical outlook was uh, very Christian in nature. He was a Martinist, as uh, a bunch of people in this circle uh, were. And so uh, he believed himself to be, at the same time, a magician and a staunch Catholic. If you think that's a contradiction in terms, so did the bishops in France at yes. that time. <laughs> Many people have thought that before and since. But, yeah. you know, in his defense, uh, he did fight a magic war and kill a Satanist by magic. Uh, yes. Yeah. So this is the, the Boulan affair. Uh, in 1893... Uh, the novelist uh, Joris Karl Huysmans 
who is uh, cited in Lovecraft as a avatar of decadence. And, uh, <laughs> and, and by other people, too. It's not just Lovecraft. I think yes. everyone has agreed that uh, Hoisman's is an avatar of decadence. Right. And his uh, most famous novel is uh, Against the Grain, in which a French decadent supervillain considers leaving the house, briefly does so in return. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but at any rate, in 1893, uh, Hoisman's has fallen under the spell of uh, this defrocked priest named Antoine Boulin. And Boulin uh, seems like uh, legitimately a, uh, a bad apple. Uh, he uh, is one of these uh, uh, self-appointed uh, cultists who uh, claimed healing powers and uh, uh, mystical insight. And of course, what do you do when you gain healing powers and gain mystical insight? You gather a group of people around you to exploit. Uh, in this case, I think he was more in the uh, sexual exploitation of his followers side of things than the... Uh, impoverishment, but that just might have been uh, he's picking the people he couldn't really impoverish all that well. And so the other occultists uh, figured that Boulin was a bad character, and uh, another uh, occultist named Oswald Wirth uh, was the one to sort of start to blow the, the lid off of uh, uh, Boulin, but he was not accused by Hoismans. Uh, after Boulin died, Hoismans accused Stanislas de Guaita and uh, Peladon, who at this time uh, had separated from one another occultically, uh, but uh, Hoismans apparently didn't know that and uh, accused them of uh, working together to cast the evil spells that caused him pain and uh, kill Boulan in 1893. So if you're going to find Peladon doing something interesting, the really interesting thing was made up by another yeah. guy <laughs> whose job it was to make up interesting things. But Peladon's main uh, effort and main claim to fame and why uh, there's uh, was recently an exhibit in, in New York surrounding him was that he was an arranger of artistic salons and became sort of a key figure in uh, publicizing the work of the symbolists, uh, both in visual art and in uh, music and uh, in uh, writing, and getting them all together. And he would hold these uh, salon evenings, uh, which had sort of a quasi-ritualistic air, but also uh, at which poetry would be read and paintings would be displayed. And that sort of coalesced the whole um, symbolist movement. So, uh, in a way, he was a, a precursor to uh, André Bertrand, who sort of did the same thing uh, later on for the Surrealist movement. Also, there's another parallel there in that Breton tried to go to the uh, hardcore Stalinists and convince them that Surrealism was a thing they needed, and uh, they were as interested in that as the Church Fathers were in yeah. uh, Martinism. And so uh, he, uh, in addition to being a, a novelist and uh, a writer of uh, magical tomes himself, uh, became very influential over this artistic scene. And, you know, if you really want to work magic in this world, uh, in a ritualistic, uh, difficult, uh, painful thing that requires a lot of repetition and may or may not work, but when it does work, changes the world, uh, try making art. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's easier than you don't have to make any promises to Baphomet or any of that stuff. Um, he wrote a book called uh, How to Become a Magus, which was one of the uh, first sort of best-selling uh, works on how to be a magician. Have you uh, looked at that, Ken? I have not read uh, Peladon's How to Become a Magus. I don't own it, and I don't even know if it's been translated. I'm I think a lot of his been. stuff, all of, all of his fiction is still just in French only. Yeah. So uh, I mean, there's probably all sorts of exciting stuff to mine in there that we'll have to wait until... Uh, the third edition of Yellow King role-playing game when someone <laughs> translates it. Right. Or when um, uh, when you do the How to Become a Megas Dossier. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Now, he in, was also uh, buddies with our friend Pappas, who I think we haven't mentioned, uh, we, but we've done him yes. in previous episodes of uh, the show. Uh, Papas was part of this original Rosicrucian Brotherhood back in the day. And then, uh, as you allude, everyone had a fight and started their own Rosicrucian Brotherhood. Yes, but Papas was a big, big time uh, uh, Martinus, so uh, mm-hmm. he would have been involved with that as well. Another uh, interesting note about Peladon is that he became... A crusader against quack suppliers of pharmaceuticals. Uh, his father was an early homeopath, and he was doing an experiment that involved ingesting small amounts of strychnine, except the strychnine that had been supplied by a German pharmacist uh, was uh, at a ten times the concentration that he thought it was, and that was the end of Peladon's father, and uh, Josephine Pel- Peladon went on a crusade. Unlike many homeopaths, he died of an insufficient amount of homeopathy, not the other way around. Yes, exactly. So, uh, a tip, kids, when you're ingesting strychnine, uh, triple check yeah. the, uh, the amount of strychnine you're ingesting. Or perhaps just, you know, do something magical, like writing strychnine on a piece of paper and eating that. Um, also, I guess uh, it's worth noting that Peladon was, in addition to uh, being, uh, as part of his conservative mindset, that he was very opposed to the idea of introducing non-Western uh, magical practice into your occultism. He didn't he even like be, ladies in his occultism. He did also did not like ladies in his occultism. So, Which, you know, given that that is half the reason to be an occultist, I think that, you know, already he is off the, the beam occult-wise. Right. Well, it, it does speak to his honesty at any rate. He's not trying to be a, a Boulan and uh, right. find a, a creepy A creepy sex black mask guy. He's just trying to be a guy who wears a, a, a cool neckerchief and a goofy hairdo. Right. Uh, so, uh, like a lot of the French occultists of this period, uh, in order to make them exciting in a horror game, because really, a lot of them are just like, these are like the nice people you might meet at Treadwell's. Yeah. Uh, except, you know, he's wearing a kooky robe. Uh, and in order to uh, have interesting things swirl around them, uh, you can either cast them as the people who know the stuff that the player characters need to go to in order to uh, combat the uh, creeping influence of the Yellow King, or uh, the Yellow King does something to them and makes them into uh, sinister versions of themselves that did not exist in our real history. And he did at one point approach the president of France and say, I could use my magic to help France. So you can, and since we know that Papus, or we suspect very strongly that Papus was actually uh, working for the French secret service when he was in Russia, we could have, if we wanted a magical spy brotherhood that is just as riven with backbiting and uh, mutual betrayal as real spy brotherhoods are because indeed occultists are the only people who are a bigger bunch of high school girls than spies. Yes. Uh, other than Trotskyites. Yes, <laughs> that's true. I guess it does go Trotskyites, occultists and spies is the order yes. in which people are petty minded betrayers of each other. But yeah, he, he claimed to have remote viewing powers. Uh, and so you could just give him the remote viewing powers and he could, uh, uh, you could go to him to have him, uh, spy on, uh, things from a long distance before the advent of, uh, security cameras. Yeah. And, um, he's got, uh, various, uh, connections with all manner of, uh, the art world. So he, through that, he can go into sort of the demi monde of society if you're looking for a way to penetrate that. Um, uh, uh, for an investigative purpose or, or whatever other reason. Uh, right. So, uh, I think that's basically the 101 on, uh, Josephine Peladan. So, uh, Ken, I think it's time for us to, uh, don our resplendent robes and, uh, polish 
our beards to a uh, lovely point. Poof up our hair. And uh, tussle our hair and uh, head out to a symbolist salon. But of course, we'll have to come back in time for another podcast, which will drop same time next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Take a seat at a symbolist salon alongside such patrons as Alexander Zimmerman, Andrew Jones, Arc Dream Publishing, Ben Dilworth, and Chris Christopher Kelly, Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.